Hey everybody, Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into our podcast at Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Would you be interested? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. We don't have lasers. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage, but we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the whole world. We sing psalms and hymns, and we preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We love Jesus, and we're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. So would you be interested in coming to a church like that? If so, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. And feel free to visit our website, gospelfellowshippca.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. And now for today's message. Go ahead and grab our Bibles. We're going to turn to Mark chapter 13 in the text today. Mark chapter 13. When you find that, let's go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's Word as we recognize that God's Word is holy. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is the authority over our, li- our, over our lives. Mark 13, 1 to 13 is our text today. Let's listen now to the Word of God. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Verse 3, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard, verse 9, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial... And deliver you over. Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved." The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen? You may be seated. There was a famous television pastor who was pretty well known for preaching before uh, his audience and behind him a large, visible, visual aid chart of the end times. And every time this preacher preached, there was that chart of the end times beside him so he could point out all of the things that were happening in the news where he would place them on the chart. And so the chart had all kinds of things that you might expect to be there. 
Uh, things like the tribulation, things like the Antichrist, things like the millennium, the return of Christ, the judgment of the world, eternity, heaven, and hell. And he would have all these things charted out behind him every time he preached. And whenever something happened in the news, his real skill as an end times expert was to be able to show you exactly where that was falling in the scope of God's redemptive history and what we call eschatology, the study of the end times. And so he would have all sorts of newsworthy events. The Cuban Missile Crisis had a place on the chart, as did the fall of the Soviet Union, as did the rise of China's economy. And he had all these sorts of things, and that's what he would do. That was his specialty, is showing you where the news fell in the scope of the end times chronology. Now, what the audience didn't really realize uh, because he always brought something new forward to the chart to place it on there, is how often he had to recalibrate his end times guesses. And that's really what they were, where they were, just, they were just guesses. And so the audience never really paid attention to the fact that he had to take down a few things over time and replace them with, with better, more accurate, more clear, more insightful predictions about how the end of the world was going to shake out. Now, you've probably not seen a Presbyterian preacher with an end times chart behind him very often. We Presbyterians, uh, we tend to be a little bit more cautious when it comes to placing current events on the scope of our end times framework. We tend not to do that. Now, as soon as I say that, there's probably an exception out there of some Presbyterian who's doing exactly what I'm, what I'm talking about. But we tend to be a little bit more cautious uh, we tend to have a little bit more boring of end times charts. And the reason for that is that we tend to try to interpret our newspapers by our Bibles rather than to interpret our Bibles from our newspapers, if that makes any sense at all. And so we tend not to get super particular as we see the news unfolding before us. Now, it's one thing for a televangelist to make a prediction about the end times. It's another thing entirely for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to tell us authoritatively what is going to become of the end. And Jesus makes in this section right here before us in Mark chapter 13 an astounding prediction. And Jesus' predictions, by the way, never need to be revised because they are 100% accurate in all that the Lord Jesus Christ says. But he makes a prophecy here in this text in Mark 13.1 that is really quite extraordinary if you think about it. Look down at your Bible again in Mark 13.1. It says this, As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, Jesus makes this prediction in A.D. 33, just a couple of days before his own crucifixion. And the prediction here is quite clear that the very temple itself, the very great Herodian temple, we talked about the various temples in another sermon a few weeks back, is going to be literally dismantled. Now, that would seem to be an almost unbelievable prediction on Jesus' part. That would be somewhat like if we were to stand here today and predict that the entire White House, every brick, every, every last component would be torn down within a few years. And yet, astonishingly, Jesus' prediction of the, the dismantling of the entire temple in Mark 13 is undisputably fulfilled 
in the year AD 70, not more than a generation after Jesus Christ said it, in the year AD 70, I hope you know this already, uh, the emperor of Rome had a, a battle essentially with the Jews in and around Jerusalem. They besieged the city of Jerusalem and they tore down the entire temple. The entire thing is removed. There is no Herodian temple today and there hasn't been for quite some time. Christ predicted the destruction of the temple in AD 33 and it was undisputably, no scholar, no archaeologist, no historian disputes that it was entirely dismantled in A.D. 70. In fact, Jesus said even, not even one stone will be left upon another. And as Josephus, the great Jewish historian, describes the terrors of the siege and destruction, the burning down of the temple, Josephus even notes that one of the reasons the Romans took apart every single stone is because the fire burned so hot that the gold of the temple melted into the cracks of the stones, and so the Romans carefully took apart every stone so as to exact and to remove all of the gold of the temple. And so this is an astonishing prophecy on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indisputably fulfilled, nobody should deny the supernatural nature of this prophecy of Christ. In fact, Mark chapter 13 is a section in Scripture that we commonly call the Olivet Discourse. And so that's going to be the name of this this section of material that we're going to be reading from in Mark chapter 13 for the next couple of weeks. I'm just starting it this morning, but we're going to fill this out as we go. The Olivet Discourse is Jesus's longest and largest teaching about the end times in Scripture. And for that reason, it's one of the most difficult Scriptures to interpret. Now, this chapter, Mark 13, has some significant parallels that if we're going to do the uh, the Olivet Discourse Justice, we're probably going to have to bring in some text from Matthew 24 and Luke 21. Those are the parallel texts to the Olivet Discourse. But it's called that because Jesus teaches it from the Mount of Olives. All right, so therefore the Olivet Discourse on, on the end times. Now one thing that you'll need to know about the Olivet Discourse, and I'm not a prophecy end times expert, believe me, but I will simply say this that as Jesus goes through some of this material, we have to be ready for the fact that some material is going to be fulfilled in the short term. Okay? Like, for instance, the destruction of the, of the temple. That's already happened a long time ago. So that would be a short term, uh, kind, of a, kind of a nearsighted prophecy on the part of Christ. On the other hand, there are some other prophecies that are going to be fulfilled throughout the, the entire church age and are being fulfilled even now. And so we're going to see some of those in the text today as well. And then thirdly, we might say that there are some prophecies that are, are yet to be fulfilled in, in later times, the very end of the end, if you will. And I think we're going to see at least one of those in, in the text this morning as well. So uh, this is what, I, what I'm going to attempt to do here this morning, if you're wondering how I'm going to approach this. I want to argue in this sermon essentially this, that in the Olivet Discourse, and this is really important, Jesus is far more concerned with our faithfulness unto the end, then he is our accuracy of foresight in predicting the end. Does that make sense? Which is why I don't have a chart behind me and I'm not going to try to do anything like that. Because I actually don't think that's the point of the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is arguing for faithfulness over against forecasting. Jesus is arguing in the Olivet Discourse that we would know our Savior as more important than we would know the order of the events of the end times. Jesus is arguing for perseverance 
over against prescience or foreknowledge. And so that's what I'm going to try to establish here this morning. I think that's pretty clear, right? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at two warnings from this text, two warnings from this text, and then we're going to show you two comforts from this text as well. All right, so two warnings and then two comforts and we'll be done. So Bible's open. Let's get into it. Let's look at warning number one here. And this is going to come to us in verse five. This is the first warning that Jesus gives. And it's very clear. It's very simple. Okay, this, is, this text is hard in some ways, but it's also very simple in others. Look how clear this warning is in verse 5. He says, Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. This is the first warning. Don't let anyone deceive you. Don't let anyone lead you astray. Verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Now, one of the ways that we could, we could do a church history class if I was going to write a church history class, here'd be the syllabus. You can almost look through church history and mark all of the major events in church history by who was deceiving and leading astray the church. You could do it like that, couldn't you? Yeah. You could mark all the major events in church history by who is the latest deceiver and liar attempting to manipulate and maneuver the people of God. And it begins very early very early in church history. So this isn't even necessarily something we're waiting for these deceivers to come. They've been here for a long time, and they have been, even back to the New Testament age. We could say even that this prophecy is fulfilled even before the New Testament is closed up, right? So go with me quick, real, real quick. Let's hop over to Acts chapter 5. I just want to show you uh, at least one example of this. Acts chapter 5 End of the chapter, verse 33 in Acts chapter 5, it says, When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. They wanted to kill the apostles. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For, look at this, verse 36, this is the key. For before these days, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him, and he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And verse 37, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up, not the Judas that you're commonly familiar with. Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So there, before even the book of Acts is over, we already have two messianic pretenders, two false Christs who have already risen up and the book of Acts is just getting started. And so you could look at all of church history and you could, you could mark it out by who is the latest deceiver and liar trying to distract the people of God. Okay, a hundred years after the Bible concludes, you've got the Gnostic sect, this group of charismatic leaders who are telling the people of God that they have the secret knowledge, the gnosis, the Gnosticism, and other people need to leave their regular churches and follow after that. And then you've got Arius, the great heretic, who told people, no, Christ isn't actually God. He isn't the second person of the Trinity. Christ is just a creation of God, like an angel, and so on and so forth. You could chart these deceptions throughout history. There's the Manichees, and later on you get to Muhammad in the five, six hundreds, a Muhammad who comes along, and what does he say? What is Muhammad's main claim? He says, I'm the final prophet. Everything else you've heard in the Old and New Testament, those things are corrupt. I'm the one who has the final 
Revelation. And after them, you have the medieval popes, right? Who, although at least they're Trinitarian, we could say that. Nevertheless, are selling salvation through the false process of selling indulgences. It's basically selling salvation for money, right? And you can get even, even modern times. You can look at Joseph Smith and Mormons. What does Joseph Smith say? But once again, no, I have the final revelation. I, I saw it in these 12 plates I dug out of the ground. And then you have Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of uh, the Christian Science. You've got Charles Taze Russell, fo- uh, the founder of the jo- Jehovah's Witnesses. You have Jim's, Jim Jones and the Jonestown cult. And this goes on and on. And Jesus' prophecy here that would, there would be many deceivers, many who would lead them astray. Look, this has been fulfilled, has been fulfilled, and continues to be fulfilled. This is a sign that continues on throughout the entire church age. This, it's been going on, and it still is. And that's why Jesus is arguing for faithfulness and fidelity here in this text. And you say to yourself, now how can this happen? How can the church fall for these, these new prophets, these false teachers, these leaders astray over and over and over again instead of remaining faithful to Christ? Well, let me suggest a couple of possibilities. First of all, there are certain people who just have a disposition towards gullibility. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a character defect. Maybe it's a personality flaw. I don't know what it is. But you have a certain segment of people that are always going to be gullible. And when somebody comes along and says that they have some new revelation, a certain fraction of people are always just going to be gobbled up by that, right? Maybe it's a weakness of intellect, a weakness of mind, a failure of moral courage. I don't know what it is, but there's always going to be this group that just gets pulled in like a gravitational tractor beam. And then you've got this desire for what we might call spiritual novelty. Always want to hear something new. And so the person who's going to be more likely to lead people astray is always going to be the person who rises up and says, Aha, I've got something new. Everybody else missed this, but I see it. Of course, part of the problem is doctrinal ignorance. Doctrinal ignorance. The church doesn't know its doctrine very well, and it should. Otherwise, it would be less prone to be pulled astray. And then maybe another factor that we need to keep in mind here is what we could call acute crisis. Whenever there's a crisis in history, a crisis in politics, a crisis of war, for instance, there are very often these occasions in which somebody takes advantage of the moment to lead, to spark, or to initiate a new movement. And these people can be very charismatic. We have to be careful about that. And isn't that why, don't you think, isn't that why Jesus leads right from don't let anyone lead you astray into verse 7 with wars and rumors of war? It's because of this acute crisis problem in which people tend to be led down the primrose path when some major crisis comes up. So look at verse 7 and 8. When you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Verse 8, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Now, every so-called end times expert who's worth his salt okay, will we'll very much like to and desire to take whatever war, crisis, international conflict is going on at any given time and put that on their chart, right? And then what they always do, they always do that, right? If you ever watch any of these, these kinds of televangelists, they always want to put whatever conflict is going on on their chart. But is that the point of what Jesus is saying here in verses 7 and 8? 
Is that the point that you need to find your war and put it on the chart so you know when the end is going to happen? I'm saying no, that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying find the conflict, put it on the chart. Jesus is saying hold the course. Hold fast. Don't be so quickly shaken off. Don't be unmoored from your foundation because his language here is do not be alarmed. This must take place. The end is not yet. These are the beginnings of birth pain. So Jesus actually seems pretty clear here that anytime there's a war or a crisis, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a harbinger of the end. In fact, quite the opposite. The whole of church history is going to be filled with these conflicts and crises. You name any hundred years, any 50 years, any 25 years in history, and there is an international conflict or a war happening at any given time. These aren't necessarily pegs to put on the board of our end times chart. The point Jesus has in bringing them up is don't allow somebody to rise up and deceive you during these times of crisis. Don't freak out and run to the next soothsayer who's going to tickle your ears with his new revelations and fanciful visions. That's the point here, you see? So this actually is a sign that is fulfilled throughout the entire, entirety of the church age. It's not something just relegated to the very end of the end. Now let's go then to the second warning here. And this one gets a little bit, uh, a little bit prickly. Look at verse 9. Be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. And if we asked why, then the answer would be to bear witness before them. So Jesus is predicting here, and he's very clear, that these sorts of things are going to happen for those who remain faithful to Christ. They will happen. And once again, just like wars and rumors of war, what we see in this text is that this isn't necessarily something we're waiting for to happen at the very end of the end, but this is something rather that has happened throughout the entirety of the church age, right? I mean, haven't Christians been persecuted now for 2,000 years? Of course they have. In fact, the text tells us that Jesus is talking to four disciples here in particular. Do you see their names right there in verse 3? Jesus is talking to several of the disciples. It says in verse 3, He sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately. And Jesus says, Be on your guard. You will be handed over. And in fact, all four of those disciples were persecuted severely. If you want to look at just one example, uh, we could flip to Acts chapter 12, and we could see James. This is the very James that's talking to Jesus here in Mark 13. But in Acts chapter 12, it says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Verse 12, He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Isn't it interesting that the three disciples named right there are three out of the four that Jesus was just talking to in Mark chapter 13? And so this prophecy is already coming true. It's already being fulfilled. And the book of Acts, again, is just getting started. Okay, So persecution is not something we're waiting for to happen, but it is constantly has been and will be taking place throughout the entirety of the church age. Perhaps in a higher degree toward the end of the end, but certainly throughout the whole. Now, what's really interesting about this text is when we begin to break down what types of persecution Jesus is predicting will take place. And there's really three, 
So let's look at persecution then under three subheadings here. We'll call the first one A, religious persecution, verse 13.9. You will be beaten in the synagogue. So you will experience religious persecution. Now the, the synagogue is the last place you should expect to be persecuted, right? Because that's supposed to be a place of peace. The synagogue is supposed to be a place of prayer. It's supposed to be a place where God's word is read. And yet, uh, contrary to our best expectation, when Paul begins to take the gospel out into the world in the book of Acts, where does the apostle Paul find the harshest persecution? Take a guess. In the synagogues. That's right. There's a very clear pattern throughout the book of Acts that Paul experiences some of the harshest persecution, uh, not out there in the pagan world necessarily, although that's coming too, but in the synagogues themselves. Look at Acts 17. I know we're bouncing back and forth between Acts and Mark today a lot. I apologize for that. But look at this. 17, Mark, I'm sorry, Acts 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the great, uh, I'm sorry, of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, but... Verse 5, the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And on and on it goes. If you look through the book of Acts, some of Paul's harshest treatments, the times he was beaten and almost stoned to death, usually began in the synagogues persecution from the religious to the religious. And we see that in church history. Islam has been a great persecutor of the Christian faith. Unfortunately, going back to the days of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church was a great persecutor of the Christian faith. Sometimes the harshest criticism comes from other religious people. But that's not all there is. The next category of persecution, we'll call this B, is official persecution. Look at 13.9, back in Mark, our main text this morning. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. So you will also be persecuted by the state, the empire, the government. You'll be dragged before kings and governors and forced to testify before them. Again, we see this even through the book of Acts. Paul is called to testify before official governors Caesar, the emperors of Rome, persecuted the Christian church more and more. It began with Nero, but it increased only over time with Marcus Aurelius and Trajan and some of the other emperors. Eventually, Christians were, of course, thrown into the gladiatorial stadiums and uh, eaten by the animals. If you're interested in some of these stories, they're pretty fantastic. Uh, look up Perpetua and Felicitas, two women who were thrown into the stadium to be devoured by wild beasts. It's an incredible story of faithfulness. Really quite impressive what some of these Christians were willing to endure. And as, as if that wasn't enough, there's also the third category of persecution. We'll call this C, family persecution. This may be the worst. I suppose it depends on how much you're willing to tolerate. But in 13.12, it says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, 
and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You say to yourself, how could that ever be? How could it be that our own children would turn against us? Well, if you've read the book 1984, it's not a Christian book. It's not prophetic in that sense. But it is a very interesting book about propaganda and the power of state coercion and intellectual control. And in the book 1984, the children do rise up against their parents because from the time they were born, they are fed a very steady diet of state propaganda so that they can't even think apart from what the state tells them is true. And so they turn over their parents even unto torture and death. So my question for you this morning, we're going to get to some comforts here, I promise, is this. What about you? If there was periods of hardship in our own day and in our own time and in our own place, would you be so quickly shaken from the faith or would you hold fast? Would you be one who is quick to fly off to the latest fanciful teacher with a galvanizing, charismatic personality and follow them into the abyss? Or would you be able to hold fast the faith and remain true to your Savior? Would you? Ask yourself that question. Is my faith in Christ solid enough that I will not be pulled from Him no matter what would come my way? I hope you can say yes to that question. Of course, we don't know until we're truly tried and tested what we're made out of, but we do know how good and faithful our God is to his people, and so we can rely on him. And with that, let's turn then to the two comforts that come in this text. Comfort number one is the Holy Spirit himself. Look at verse 11. When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is making a pretty fantastic promise here. That if you were to be truly persecuted and crushed for your faith, that even in the moment of your despair, even in the moment where you think you're left alone, even in the moment when you think you're about to be silenced and crushed, yet Jesus promises that that is the very moment that his Spirit, the very Spirit of God, will be most and truly present to you in that moment so that you don't even need to worry about what words come out of your mouth, but it will be the Spirit of God who speaks in you and through you in that moment of crisis. And that's a comfort to us, isn't it? That there will be no moment in which you will be utterly left alone, but that in that very crisis, the Spirit of God will be with you. I want to tell you one story real quick. It's about one of the early martyrs. His name was Polycarp. He was one of the disciples, believe it or not, of the Apostle John himself. And he was the one who discipled Irenaeus. So Polycarp is an interesting bridge between the apostolic age and the post-apostolic age. He's a really important person. And he's one of the early martyrs. In fact, they killed him when he was 86 years old. Let me just read this paragraph to you. It's really instructive. When the old bishop, Polycarp, 86 years old, learned that he was being sought... He followed the advice of the flock and hid for several days. But after having changed to another hiding place, he decided that his arrest was the will of God, and he refused to flee any further and calmly awaited those who came after him. The proconsul who presided at his trial tried to persuade him, urging him to think about his advanced age and worship the emperor. And when the judge threatened him with burning alive, Polycarp simply answered that the fire that the judge could light would only last for a moment, whereas the eternal life 
I'm sorry, the eternal fire would never go out. Finally, we are told that after he was tied to the post and the pyre, he looked up and prayed out loud, saying, Sovereign Lord God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy for this moment, so that jointly with your martyrs I may have a share in the cup of Christ. For this I bless you and glorify you. Amen. And his most famous words, he says, My Savior has been faithful to me for 86 years. How could I possibly turn on him at the end? A wonderful story of faithfulness. I have no doubt uh, the Spirit of God speaking through him even in that moment of crisis. And so if we want to review what we've seen this morning, uh, we could simply say that some of these things that Jesus says were fulfilled very early on, such as the destruction of the temple. Some of them are fulfilled throughout the entire church age. And some things are filled, fulfilled only at the very end. Well, what's an example of the latter? Well, uh, look at verse 10. This is an important verse. Jesus says, The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. This is still unfolding. It's not yet complete. It's not yet done. The mission of the gospel is still going out. Uh, what you heard from Dan this morning is a partial fulfillment of this prophecy. The gospel is still being carried to the nations. And so the one thing that we can put on our chart, if we're going to make a chart at all, is that verse 10 will be successfully fulfilled. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Before Christ returns, there is one promise that we can take to the bank that the evangelization of the globe will be essentially successful. Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This will take place. And it's even taking place in our day. It's not done yet, but it's happening. It's good news. And so here's the second comfort, and we'll end on this thought. The second comfort for the Christian is that your salvation, believer, is not in question. Of all the things that could and might and have happened, one of the things that is not in question is your salvation if you are in Christ. Jesus promises to us in verse 13, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but, and this is a beautiful but right here, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we desire to have faithfulness to you as over against foreknowledge and foresight of the future. Lord, it is better for us to know you than to know what is going to happen tomorrow. And so, Lord, we can trust in the words of Christ that all who are saved by you will be saved unto the uttermost and completely and wholly. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.